Helter Skelter, the truth about Vincent Bugliosi and a compromised prosecution. This is the Fedora Chronicles radio show's True Crime one-on-one special. Paige Elmore from Reverie True Crime returns for part two on our series on Tom O'Brien's book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. This time, Paige and I discuss specific aspects of Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor for the Los Angeles County's District Attorney's Office in the infamous case against Charles Manson and the other members of his cult. Who was Vincent Bugliosi really? And why does author Tom O'Neill believe that he was a tainted prosecutor? And what about the conspiracy theory that Bugliosi was assigned to this case specifically to try this case in such a specific manner to hide the Hollywood elite and law enforcement members who were involved with Charles Manson and his cult? Was Mr. Bugliosi helping the CIA and the FBI cover up the fact that Manson was an informant or a test subject for MKUltra? And a special note to our listeners, we apologize for the slight sound of a fan and air filtration device in the background. We are still trying to remove the smell of smoke that still lingered after suspicious fire from the previous week. Once again, I'm your host, Eric Fisk from the Fedora Chronicles. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. So one of the things I wanted to say to you and our audience is uh, um, I apologize because um, we ended the episode, I think, abruptly. And I was going to give this big, huge finish and tie everything together in a big, huge, neat little bow. And my wife was kind of like, oh, my God, dinner is burning. You got to get off the the, the pod. (laughs) One of the things that I wanted to say in the end of our first episode about MKUltra is that we have no promises and no guarantees and no evidence that the CIA ever stopped conducting these experiments. Right. There's nothing anywhere that says MKUltra was absolutely finished or ended or something like that still isn't going on today. Yes. And that's probably the scariest part. Um, because we had been lied to for literally decades about what they were doing. They aren't even supposed to be spying or doing anything to American citizens. It's literally against the charter of the CIA to do anything yeah. to American citizens. I just, I don't think that's, I definitely think that's still going on. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and we didn't (laughs) even get to Operation Mockingbird, which is something that I think that that's another thing that we should save for another episode because um, of everything that's been going on in the past couple of weeks in the realm of politics. Mm -hmm. So, um, So with that said, And uh, moving on to episode two of our series on chaos, Um, like I said, the title of this episode is Helter Skelter, the truth about Vincent Bugliosi and a compromised prosecution. 
Yes. And I want to start off and I want to ask you, when did you first hear the name of Vincent Bugliosi? Honestly, I probably, oh, just a couple of years ago, honestly. I never really looked into who the prosecutor was in this case until a few years ago. So I'm kind of new to, to him, actually. The first time I heard of Vincent Bugliosi was his coverage during the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm not sure if you... Oh, that's right. Uh, and what I thought was aggravating and frustrating at the same time is that um, I think Playboy magazine had an exclusive with old Uncle Vince to read his essays and his interviews that he was conducting and his, his coverage and talking about um, all the evidence that pretty much proved that O.J. Simpson killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. And you had to buy the magazine to read his articles. You just couldn't just buy his articles. And it was like, it's kind of like awkward when you, when you have a really great girlfriend and you're trying to explain to her, no, no, I'm not, I, I, I'm only buying the Playboy magazine to read the articles by Vincent Bugliosi. No, no, baby, I swear. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. Exactly. I, I got the feeling you don't believe me either. I don't. I don't. <laughs> well, I don't know, though. You might actually, like, would do that. You would get it just for that. Exactly. Because I know how much you're into this stuff as much as I am, so. Yeah. Um. I, I'm I'm just I'm just glad that it wasn't a more provocative magazine, and you could just insult all, uh, or insert all of your other titles here. But <laughs> yeah. I thought that a lot of the his coverage and the comments that he made about the legal system in California, especially Los Angeles, was extraordinary. But he was a little bit too verbose and full of himself and a little hyperbolic if that's the word oh my god he is so full of himself i found a interview with him around the time that helter skelter came out and he was interviewed by someone named robin lindley mm -hmm. and he was so full of himself it was so cringy and that's only the beginning <laughs> yeah. So like where do you where do you want to start with Vincent because it's a lot. Well, I think we should preference everything by saying that uh we're not going with just what was in the book Chaos. We're also going with other articles that we found, other pieces of evidence. Definitely. That definitely prove without a shadow of a doubt that Vincent Bugliosi um is it is it can we say that he was damaged or can we say that he was I mean we can say that he's compromised obviously but mm -hmm. can we also say that he was deranged and then explain to the uh, listeners yes <laughs> yes all right. So where do you want to begin with Vincent Bugliosi? Do you want to begin with the very beginning, his pre-Manson? Yeah, Go ahead. in case some people may not know 
like who like who he is and his past and stuff. Go for um, it. He was born. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, he was born in uh, August of 1934 in Minnesota, and he got married in 1956. Uh, he went to the University of Miami, Florida, in 1956, and he was a Democrat. Uh, his many years of legal experience, uh, first he was a district attorney and later he was a defense attorney and uh, he became famous during the 1970s when he successfully prosecuted five members of the Manson family in connection with the brutal 1969 Tate LaBianca murders in, uh, California, um, following the case, he wrote the book Helter Skelter, and he wrote it with Kurt Gentry. And his whole motive for the killings was that Charles Manson's phrase, Helter Skelter, was a vague prediction of a forthcoming apocalyptic war between the races that only the Manson family that would be safely inside Death Valley would survive. And... He says that Manson was convinced that the Beatles, who recorded the song Helter Skelter on their 1968 album, uh, commonly referred to as the White Album, that they were sending him hidden messages in their music. And I just find this kind of completely outrageous. It is kind of theatrical to me. Absolutely. And um, in Helter Skelter, Bugliosi and co-author Gentry chronicle the crime, the often mismanaged police investigation, which, I mean, he was a part of, <laughs> and the controversial trial. But yeah, his, his whole thing was the Beatles were sending him hidden messages in the song Helter Skelter and that that he was planning this apocalyptic war between the races and they were going to be the only ones to survive and keep the basically grow their own family so the whole united states would be their family and that is just so theatrical yeah it's 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 not believable to me no it just one of the things that we also wanted to reiterate time and again in the in the first episode getting back to mk ultra for example um the entire purpose of mk ultra and their experiments was to see if whether or not the u.s government under the secret clandestine operation could create murderers like programmable assassins, as it were. And could you brainwash somebody to get them to do your bidding? And there's overwhelming evidence that Charles Manson had, was close to MK Ultra by one degree of separation through um, uh, Julian West, Dr. Julian West. Yes. And, and he did a, he did, you know, in the last episode, we talked about 
how MK Ultra was performed in in like clinics and we talked about the free clinic that was in Hyde and Ashbury and he did a whole chapter on the Hyde Ashbury free medical clinic and Dr. Jolly was there and they would go every day. Yep. So and and Jolly was prob was not probably most likely the person who supplied Charlie Manson with all of his drugs. Yes. And somebody was coaching Charlie Manson in what to say to convince people to do their bidding. Like tell them this and tell them tell them that. And definitely was able to tap into um, all the catchphrases and all the, um, what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, just using the mindset of the sixties, the, the thoughts and concerns and the worries yeah. and the hopes of that was so prevalent in hippie culture and, and right. tell these people that, you know, somebody was telling Charlie Manson and Charlie Manson also had figured out a way to do this himself. Get these people to believe that the end is near. That we're talking about the dawning of the age of Aquarius. There's going to be Helter Skelter. There's going to be Armageddon. And it's going, um, according to the Bible, there's going to be like um, uh, 144,000 people who are going to rule the earth for all eternity after the second coming. And I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the second coming. And you need to do what I say so we can we can trigger revelations, helter skelter, and lead the earth after this horrible crisis. Somebody, somebody, we're not really sure who, was co coaching Charlie Manson. Right. So the $10,000 question is, who was that, who else could it have been with the exception of Julian West? Well, two names that are mentioned in the chapter are the two Smiths, David Smith and Roger Smith, and they both uh, worked at the hosp at the clinic, the free clinic, and um, the Smiths made it clear that they knew Manson well, and they felt some sympathy towards him. Um, there could be no denying that, given how often they'd been seen together. Let's see. David Smith described the family's frequent trips to the HAFMC, which is the free clinic, where Charlie's girls, as they were known around the halls, were treated for STDs and unwanted pregnancies. Um, the girls tended to Manson's every need, never speaking unless spoken to. But they do say that he ref they referred to him as Christ or JC. But they went to this clinic every day. Um, one of the Smiths uh, wrote that Charlie would invoke mysticism and pop psychology when, the, when he was on acid. And he would say, you have to negate your ego. But they said that the acid that they would give at the free clinic that all the hippies there were basically taking this and 
they focused on where the where the hippies were, which was Height and Ashbury. So it was like the perfect storm in a way. Yeah. One of the things that I'd also like to interject here as well in part of all of this is that Charlie Manson went from being somebody who was considered a petty thief, a small-time criminal. Um, yeah. He was born to an unwed mother in Cincinnati, Cincinnati Ohio. Um, he was constantly in and out of jail for various crimes. I'm kind of like reading off one of, one of our show notes here. Um, and he was... When he wasn't in jail, he was struggling to just feed himself because not only was he chronically unemployed, he was unemployable because he didn't seem to have any marketable skills other than the fact that he was allegedly good looking when he was much younger. And for some reason he was, um, he, he considered himself a songwriter. And then he went from being pretty much a hobo to a hippie leader cult yeah, he went from basically being a drifter to uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all of these women are flocking to him, and he's like, yeah, they're cult leaders. So how does that even happen? How do you go from being a drifter that has barely survived all of these years, right? and now you're just hot shit among all of these people? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It honestly does not make a lot of sense. How did he how did he go from this to that? How did he become this really insignificant character to right. the center of this controversy and is able to convince these young people, these young hippies to commit these atrocious acts? Yeah, and and why would he do that? When he had never done that all of his life, it seems to come straight out of the blue. Right. Now, what I would like to be able to tell our audience, there's no way that I'm going to be able to convince you guys listening that we know this for a fact, that Charlie Manson was a part of MK Ultra, and he was part of the secret program. All the other circumstantial evidence surrounding Charlie Manson's life leading up to this moment of the first killings in August of 1969, the year I was born, a month after I was born, coincidentally. (laughs) Um, I hope that doesn't make me sound old. Um, No. uh, I'm old. No. So anyway, um, (laughs) 51 isn't that old. Um, But so, but the issue, the issue was, Nobody could really make a decent argument. How could Charlie Manson become Charlie Manson all on his own? I'm convinced, and I think that maybe I've persuaded you or pointed you in the right direction that... Well, yeah, I mean, the book really did it for me. When, When you suggested this book, I mean, everything I ever thought changed. It's a it's, now, it's a light it is it is a life changing book. I will definitely give it really Tom O'Neill is. that. I will definitely give Tom O'Neill that. Um 
Then along comes Vincent Bugliosi, who is already compromised. And Vincent Bugliosi is able to convince first a jury of Charlie Manson's peers and then the rest of the country that this happened somehow naturally. Charlie Manson was the leader of this cult. He was, he was able to convince these people to do these horrible things. And that's the end of it. That's it. Charlie uh-huh. Manson's in prison. We can, we can all sleep well at night. How did that happen? How did that go about? And the real mystery is how was Vincent Bugliosi the prosecutor? How did he become the lead prosecutor in this case when he already had some serious issues, starting with the milkman? Or do we even want to go even further back before the milkman? <laughs> it's up to you. I'm, I've got pretty much a lot of stuff laid out here in front of me, so we can start wherever you want to. Can we go further back before the milkman or (laughs) is there anything else before the milkman that we could point at and say hmm what do you think you're more educated on this than me like i'm just now like diving into all this and you know you know so much more than me so here's the here's the problem and here's the dilemma is that um, somebody had said on Twitter, you have such a beautiful voice. People love listening to you. <laughs> I want to give the, crazy. <laughs> I want to give the audience what they want. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Let's, let's just start. Let's start. Let's start with the milkman and the first indication that I think that Vincent Bugliosi is crazy. Okay, go for it, and I will chime in. All right. So before Vincent Bugliosi became the person that we all know him to be, uh, he had an incident with the milkman. And as as Tom O'Neill had explained it perfectly on the Joe Rogan show, once upon a time, um, milk was... Another dairy product was delivered to your house every day by the milkman. You had the milkman and you had the, the mailman and you also had grocery stores that delivered. It, um, mm-hmm. If you were well-to-do, you could have these things delivered. The best part about having a milkman is that the milkman would deliver the milk and dairy products before breakfast. And you would go out to uh, your front door or your side door, and there would be your milk. And around 1965, Vincent Bugliosi um, accused the milkman, Herbert Weisel, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, of being the father of Vincent Bugliosi's son, I I think it's Vincent the Third because Vincent Bugliosi that we all know and love is is a junior. So, and he was so convinced of this accusation that he Vincent Bugliosi used the power of his office 
and the resources available to him to do investigations where essentially he stalked the milkman and he followed members of the milkman's uh, family to wherever he went. And Vincent Bugliosi went so far as to essentially abducting Herbert Weisel's daughter, take her to a toy store, buy her everything that she wanted at the toy store, took the girl back home, and the mother completely, totally freaked out. As, of course, you could imagine. Oh, yeah. And Vincent Bugliosi sent these horrible letters, These uh, um, called the, the Weisel house at all all hours of the night um pretty much terrorized this family to the point where the milkman herbert weisel had a an emotional breakdown yeah and when vincent bugliosi ran for the attorney general's office in his region the weisel family mr and mrs weisel actually went to vincent bugliosi's appoint um opponent and had said, you got to know this about this guy, Vincent Bugliosi. They had a press conference and they pretty much laid out everything. Because um, I guess they kept everything in a box. All the weird letters, all the, uh, the weird pictures, like everything that they could get their hands on that proved that Vincent Bugliosi was a stalker, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I'm just now getting to that part of the document. They, so, yeah, they were receiving letters from an anonymous caller. And, oh, wow. Their anxiety was pretty much out of control. So what, uh, um, what Paige is probably looking at right now is this large, fa- um, large file. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> and, and this is a... Um, a 146-page document called the Vincent Bugliosi story. And it was from the law offices of George V. Denny III. And pretty much this law office, on behalf of the... um, On behalf of somebody who actually also um, was harassed by Vincent Bugliosi um, in in the law office where he worked. So there's a lot of people who came forward and had said that this this guy is absolutely, totally crazy. Most of this document that we're looking um, right here is this, it basically talks about just the horrors that um, the, 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 milk, the milkman's family had gone through. Um, another yeah. thing... Um, Part of this that overlaps here is that there was the reception at Virginia Cardwell. And Virginia Cardwell was also interwoven into all of these stories. I don't know. I don't know if we do we have time to get into that, because that also sort of points to um, some of Vincent Bugliosi's strange behavior and how um, he was. I believe that she was the receptionist that he took to their house 
And he pretty much had them, had this couple, the Weisel couple, trapped in their own house. And this receptionist of his, and um, his secretary, I assume, wrote this affidavit under extreme pressure and duress and forced them to sign it saying that they made the whole story up. Now, what what page are you on? I, I'm looking. Because I'm trying to. I'm I I am jumping around all over the place. It's okay. No, it's okay because it was my fault for not taking the time to <laughs> no, find the there's, time there's to go so through much. this thoroughly. There's there's so yeah. much here. I'm just going to do a quick Google search of see if I can get a. Um, there's so much that I've, I'm just seeing that my mouth is just on the floor. Yeah, because um, one of the things that we've also sort of discovered in our research is that Vincent, B while Vincent B B B Lugosi, Bella Lugosi, Vincent Bella Lugosi, <laughs> Vincent Bugliosi <laughs> accused his wife of having an affair and a having extramarital sex, which was, he claims, was the product of his son, Vince. Vincent mm -hmm. Bugliosi... I've, I'm not sure if it's two or three women that he also had extramarital relationships. And I think that we know of at least two children he had with his mistresses. I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead. Oh, you're good. You're good. I'm, I'm, this is the part where I just listen and learn. <laughs> um, one of the women who he had an affair with went to Vincent Bugliosi and had said, um, had told him, uh, I'm pregnant, I'm going to have a baby, I'm not sure what to do. And Vincent told her, well, you're going to have to have an abortion. And she said that she can't because she's a, she's, um, she's a Catholic and obviously, that's against her religion. And um, he beat her senselessly, beat her until she had a miscarriage. Jesus. So then, there, then there is that, and then there were a couple of other incidences where, and is well documented in Tom O'Neill's book. But this especially mm -hmm. came to light when Vincent B B Billig uh, <laughs> Vincent Bugliosi Vincent <laughs> Vincent Bellagosi. <laughs> That's his new name now. That's his new name. You're stuck with it now, Vince. Um, yeah. One of the things that Tom O'Neill had found out is that Vincent also had a history of intimidating witnesses either fabricating uh, evidence or hiding witness, uh, not with hiding witnesses, springing witnesses <laughs> on the court at the last minute and hiding evidence from the defense, especially in this case. A lot of people are sort of like left wondering if Vincent Pelosi was so compromised and the district attorney's office knew of Vincent's problems, especially with the accusations of 
stalking this poor family. How is it that he was able to become the prosecutor for this case? Yeah, I don't understand. When you've got all of this terrible history, how does that even happen? I don't know. Do we know? Do we know? <laughs> well, that's the whole thing. That's that's the that's the that's the spe- the speculation. And I also want to be able to make absolutely, totally, perfectly um, sure to um, Vincent Be- Be- Vincent Beglosi had. Every, by the way, you're familiar with the Fedora Chronicles radio show Drinking Game. Every time I mispronounce <laughs> a name, you have to take or a shot. Me. Or you. Yeah. Every every time we mispronounce a name, you get to take a shot. Or you have to take a shot. Um, there's also another woman, Linda Alvarez, who has come forward and said that she had a secret love child and an actual family in another part of the country. I believe that, that she lived in Tucson, Arizona, and he would come and stay with his second family on occasion. So Charles Manson, Charles Manson prosecutor, had a secret love tra- child with his mistress of 23 years. Um, oh, she said that she was Vince's lover from July 1978 to September 2001. We lived together at times, and we had a child on his birthday, August 18, 1981. And she had to keep her daughter a secret. That's going to be awful. And she, yeah. And she said that she would often read about Vince's other two children, and it hurt her so bad that their daughter was less a part of his family. Yeah. And the, the daughter's name is Nina, and she said it was painful that Nina was being ignored. And, and she spoke out and said, you know, it's time for her to be acknowledged. They met when she was working as a cocktail waitress at the Marriott Hotel in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, he told her that he would marry her, but he never did. And she said there were some good times, but more horrible times than not. He, he, he wasn't a very nice guy, apparently. No way. Yeah. And you can tell it when he does interviews. He is so full of himself. It's... Unbelievable. And we're also going to get to other aspects. Oh, of, yeah. Of how he was just so full of himself. Right. Uh, um, you did more of a deep dive, like, on who he is. And I have, like, tons of <laughs> Manson-related stuff. So his background is kind of new to me as far as all of this well i i I also have a grudge against vincent buglo i also have a grudge against vincent for another reason that i'll get to later in the podcast and why i think that people need to rethink who this character was and realize that there's something nefarious going on with with vincent bugliosi yeah so Somehow, some way, we're not sure how. Vincent was given the case, which is literally the trial of the century at that time. It was the most sensational trial. It was, what's a big, huge, famous case that everybody has been obsessed with in the past couple of years? 
Um, uh, Lori Vallow. Okay. What, Doomsday Cult. We could yes. That's that's an that's that's a really good one. Um, you know how everybody was obsessed with Tiger King last winter. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I was too. Um, <laughs> yes. Imagine everybody's obsession with a case like Tiger King with the same intensity, but it, this went on for at least maybe a year. Yeah. Where everybody was like on the edge of their seat wondering like what's going to happen next? What revelation is going to happen next? And right. one, of the, one of the things that Vincent Bug one of the things that Vincent was really good at doing and was very capable of was not just introducing aspects into the court that he may or may not have just made up out of whole cloth. Yeah. But he was also able to exclude certain things. Like, oh, yes. There were other, like, what, like, what did he exclude from the case or who, who was he able to protect? Do you remember any of the names? Susan Atkins. I think he protected her a lot. Because she got off. She was an... uh, Bugliosi knew Susan Atkins was an unstable witness from the get-go. We also have um, Terry Melcher's involvement in the case. Now, one of the theories and you, you'll you'll notice that it's like I, i'm looking i'm looking really hard to make sure before before i say anything else i want to make sure i want to make sure that terry melcher is dead <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i have a lot on terry melcher too okay so according to the rolling stone magazine terry melcher died at the age of 62 Okay, I think we're safe unless his ghost comes to haunt us. I think we're we're okay. <laughs> there's, there's like the rattling of the doors. Eric and Paige. Eric and Paige. Now, t- uh, Terry Melcher, and I'm just reading this off of Wikipedia really quick, so you can go and you can check this out yourself. Terry Paul Melcher was an American record producer, singer, and songwriter who was instrumental in shaping the mid to late 1960s California sound and folk rock movement. His best known contributions were producing the Birds' first two albums, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, 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 as well as most of the hit recordings of Paul Revere and the Raiders and Gentle Soul. He is also known for his brief association with Charles Manson, which we'll get back in a second, a songwriter and cult leader who was later convicted of several murders. Melcher was the only child of actress-singer Doris Day. His father was Day's first husband, Al Jordine. And he was adopted by her third husband, Martin Melcher. Most of the early recordings were with the vocal surf act, the Rip Chords, and Bruce and Terry. In the 1960s, Melcher was acquitted, was acquainted with the Beach Boys, helping connect Brian Wilson to Smile lyricist Van Dyke Parks. Um, one of the things that Vincent was able to do is weave this narrative about Helter Skelter and the coming race riot and race war 
that was going to allegedly destroy the earth. And Charlie Manson and the Manson family were able to go to hide out in the in this bottomless pit. <laughs> I laugh yeah. when I say this. Out, I mean, out in the desert. And what a lot of people have speculated. And I don't know if I believe this or not. But Vincent Bo- Bo- Vincent was able to shield Terry Melcher from any damage from this because there's a lot of evidence that points to Charlie Manson being furious with Terry Melcher because Terry Mm -hmm. Melcher had said after I think that he produced one song of Charlie Manson's Charlie Manson wrote a song for I'm not sure if it was the Beach Boys Terry Melcher had said you're not that good you're not that great of of a writer or a performer um, I can't give you a record deal because you don't have any talent. The conspiracy theory, as it were, is that Charles Manson was incensed and insulted. So he told his family members to go to where Terry had lived at the time or had previously lived and kill everybody there and make it look like the Black Panthers did it. Mm-hmm. And what Charles Manson didn't know at the time is that um, Shannon Tate and the other victims who were there, including her unborn child, were killed this one night in August. And this horrific murder pretty much traumatized the entire Los Angeles area. Yeah. So the now that's the like story that everyone kind of knows. The official story, you know, was that Manson was really pissed off and he wanted to instill fear in Terry Melcher. And so Terry was living uh on Cielo Drive and he knew that Terry Melcher didn't live there anymore is what Tom is saying. And he just wanted to scare him basically. Um, and Tom goes on to say that this was a vital point in the case. According to Bugliosi, Manson never went to the house the night of the murders. He just sent his followers there and told them to kill anyone they found to convict Manson of criminal conspiracy and get him a death sentence. Bugliosi had to establish a compelling, premeditated reason that Manson had picked the Cielo Drive home. And Terry Melcher was that reason. So, Melcher testified that he met Manson exactly three times. Um, The last time was around May 20th, 1969, and that was a little over two months before the murders. After Charlie was arrested... Terry Melcher became really scared of the family and supposedly Bugliosi had to give him a tranquilizer for him to calm down before he testified. Um, Bugliosi told Tom O'Neill, which he does, he does not like this guy at all because he's just so full of it. 
But he said that Bugliosi told him that 10, 15 years after the murders, um, that Terry Melcher was still convinced that the Manson family was after him that night. And Tom goes on to say that, well, if Charlie wanted to kill Melcher, he could have. He had Melcher's new address in Malibu. And Greg Jacobson, uh, a musician and a friend of the Beach Boys, testified at the trial that Manson called him before the murders happened. And he asked him if Terry Melcher had a, quote, green spyglass. And Greg was like, yeah, why? And Charlie said, well, he doesn't anymore. So the family had kind of snuck over to Melcher's Malibu home, not the Cielo Drive home, but the Malibu house where they knew he was living. And they stole this spyglass. Candace Bergen was Terry Melcher's girlfriend at the time. And she noted that this happened, supposedly. Um, so over the years, Manson researchers have generally agreed that Melcher was stretching the truth. While you're doing that, I just want to interject here. Okay. A lot of this wasn't in the in the trial against Charlie Manson. Oh, yeah, no. Go ahead. Because Tom found proof that Terry Melcher was much closer to Manson, Tex Watson, and the girls than he ever said. A year before the murders, he'd even lived with a member of the family at the house on Cielo Drive. And it's, it's very likely that Terry Melcher knew right after the crimes that Charlie Manson was involved in some way, but he never told the police. And Tom found evidence that Terry Melcher lied on the stand under oath. And Vincent Bugliosi definitely knew about it. And maybe he'd even put him up to it. So, it's uh, he's talking about witness perjury. Um, and I know we'll probably get into the Roman Polanski part of everything. Um, but... He said, did Bugliosi change the story to protect Melcher, a powerful record produce, producer and the only child of one Hollywood's most beloved stars? Had he streamlined certain elements for the jury's sake in the interest of getting an easy conviction? Or was this part of a broader pattern of deception, of bending the facts to support a narrative that was otherwise too shaky to stand, which was Helter Skelter? Because it seemed more just like an illusion more and more by the day to Tom. Yeah. And he just kept chasing, you know, the Melcher side of things. And Terry Melcher and Manson met because of Dennis Wilson. And he was the drummer for the Beach Boys. Dennis Wilson was. Um, his brother, Brian, was uh, took over when the band was kind of declining. Yeah. There but were, that's, how, that's how they met. There's, there's a lot of inconsistencies with the story that Terry Melcher told the press. There's a lot of things that he had said in 
a perfect example, Rolling Stone, that turned out to not be true. There's the entire episode when Tom O'Neill went to talk to Terry Melcher and interview him for the book. And Terry Melcher made it perfectly clear that Terry could kill Tom or have Tom killed or destroy his book before he got finished writing it. And then Terry turned around and said, you should be the co-author for my autobiography. Mm -hmm. And Tom is basically the one guy who kind of stumbled upon these inconsistencies in this book. And again, I think that we have to basically say, how many years was Tom working on this book? More than 20? Yeah, more than 20. At least 20? So not, not exactly sure how else to sort of describe what happened within the trial that was absolutely totally made up according to Tom O'Neill in his book. There's there it's There are of, so many files that conflict everything that Vincent Bugliosi said. There are files where Vincent completely struck out what people actually said and didn't use that in the trial because it was basically damning to the prosecution side. Absolutely. There's a lot of things whereas um Things that the prosecution could have used, rope them in their guilt in the killing of the, uh, uh, in the Tate-LaBianca murders. And one of the things that Vincent was able to do and do very well is also exclude other murders that had occurred before that, that was committed by the family, or by the Manson family. So there's all there's this overwhelming evidence that the Manson family had committed more crimes and they should have been put away for those crimes for whatever reason those crimes were swept underneath the carpet and completely totally ignored by the prosecution and it would have made their case easier to prosecute and get a conviction if you had been able to say Charlie Manson was directly responsible for all of these other crimes and put that in front of the jury. There's no way that the jury would say, oh, yeah, Charlie Manson. Yeah, um, a great guy. Let's let's let him free and let's see if we can get another record deal from somebody else. There were so many other things that Charlie Manson had done that was not even brought up in the trial for reasons that, again, only conspiracy theorists can speculate on. Yeah. How and why Vincent was able to keep that out of the trial, I don't think we'll ever know, because sadly he's dead. Yeah. So we don't know exactly why Vincent decided to prosecute the case the way he did. We have we have no idea why he left out all of this evidence. We can speculate that he was trying to protect Hollywood elite who were involved with the Manson family before and after the Tate-LaBianca murders. Yeah, because none of them would speak. None of them would even talk about it, to Tom, at least. Like, And I don't think that any of them have really spoken out at all. 
what else what else is going on with Vincent Bugliosi that we would like to be able to share with people and get them to know that there's a lot of things about the Manson family that was purposefully let out left out. I'm wondering if now would be a good time to to bring up Vincent's other books and my grudge against Vincent Bugliosi. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Cuz I was actually I was actually saving this for the big wow fin um finish. Um, one of the things that we also sort of have to remember about Vincent Bugliosi is that um, his wife and other members of his family were convinced that Vincent Bugliosi had a severe mental health issue. Um, his wife went on the record a couple of times, with, especially uh, with the case of the, the milkman, Herbert Weisel, and his family and his lawyers, and had said, like, we know he's crazy. We know he's not right. He's a little touched in the head. One of the things that mm -hmm. you and I have seen over and over again is his manic behavior and how he was able to step on people and threaten people. One of the things that Tom O'Neill had, had talked about ad nauseum is how they had a really great relationship, meaning Tom O'Neill, the author of the book, and Vincent Bugliosi. Up until yeah. the point where Tom started to uncover things that Vince had left out of the trial. And Tom O'Neill dedicated an entire chapter of the book. I think it's this. I'm not sure if it's the second or the third chapter. Um where he re-examined Helter Skelter, the, the book that Vincent Bugliosi wrote. And there were so many of these inconsistencies in the book and big, huge chunks that were left out. And this is like during the beginning of his 20-year his investigation into the Manson murders. And their last sit-down in person, or one of their last sit-downs, Vincent pretty much had like a mock trial right in front of Tom and his wife, who was literally exhausted. And this went on well into the evening and well into the next morning, where Vince had all this paperwork all laid out, and he, was, he, he did everything he could to try and convince Tom that he did the right thing, and he didn't leave anything out, and at the end of the night, Vincent had said, if you go ahead with this book and you oh, yeah. say what it is that you think is correct, you publish the book in the direction that I think you're going in, I want you to know that I, can, I, I will sue you. And I mm -hmm. will take everything that you have and you will spend the rest of your life working for me and my, my estate. Pretty yep. much, pretty and much. Yep. If you're not doing something wrong or you don't have anything to hide, then why do you, why would you threaten someone like that? Exactly. It's just not, uh, you wouldn't. So Tom goes about his business and his answering machine, and I don't know if people remember answering machines or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Before voicemail. Oh, I do. <laughs> you used to have to have this little recording device that you would attach to your phone or you would connect it to your phone you'd have this thing called like a telephone line where that would come out of the wall 
and into the answering machine and then <laughs> to your phone. I can't believe we have to explain this to people, but I know some people don't know. <laughs> so when you pick up the phone and you called somebody's house, see, people people couldn't carry their phones around anywhere because it were, they, were, they weren't wireless yet. And you used to have these um, tapes, these cassette tapes mm -hmm. in... Very, like, very small. <laughs> some of them were small and some of them were big, but they were special tapes that you used to put in, and it would record your voice on this cassette tape. And then you would play it back later when you got home to see if you had any messages, because usually it had a, like a like a beeping light or it had like an LED uh, display saying how many calls you had. Like if you had three calls, the number three would be on your answering machine and you would listen to your messages. And um, people made leaving outgoing messages as sort of like an art form. Hi, this is Eric from the Fedora Chronicles and you've reached my answering machine. I'm not here right now to take your call. But if you leave a message after the end of the beep, we'll get right back yeah. to you. Right? <laughs> leave a message after the beep. Uh -huh. Or people would leave a joke, you know. And, um, yeah. and um, Tom O'Neill would come home and find Vincent Bugliosi <laughs> had filled his <laughs> yes. answering machine. Yeah. Pretty much these long, coherent blah, blah, blahs. And basically mm -hmm. everything, like that one night where Vincent Bugliosi kept him up all night, like with his little mock trial, as it were, Vincent right. started all over again from the beginning on the phone. And the thing is, you'd only have like maybe somewhere between 30 seconds to a minute, maybe three minutes. And it was mm -hmm. just like the answering machine would cut you off and then you'd have to start all over again or you'd have yeah. to pick up where you left off. And it mm -hmm. was just like this incoherent long rambling from Vincent Bugliosi. Um, one minute threatening to ruin Tom O'Neill's life and then the next minute saying, oh, you need to look at this evidence and that evidence. And uh -huh. as Tom would like well document, Vince would try and steer Tom away from things that he was looking at. And... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go and, ahead. Because I'm just... I'm getting excited about something that I found. Go ahead. So <laughs> Sorry. Tom had found this big, huge piece of evidence that was left out and went to the. Are you? Which one are you talking about? Because <laughs> I'm on the part about the crossed out sections of Bugliosi's notes. Go ahead. Tell tell uh, tell the tell the audience. You're you're excited. You're you're dying to tell them. Go ahead and tell them. Well, I, I, is, I was just wondering if this is what you were talking yes, about go because ahead. it's it describes three visits by Terry Melcher to the Manson family after after the murders. And go, go ahead. Tom says Tom says, you know, I've read them, reread them and reread them again and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And so he took word for word notes and he wanted um Let's see. Okay, so this guy named DiCarlo, he was uh, a biker from Venice in a gang called the Straight Satans. And he started staying at the Spawn Ranch in the spring of 69. And he and his associates basically provided safety for Manson. And basically, Manson had become really paranoid. And so DiCarlo's father 
was in the firearms business and um let's see it says even though danny was never a full-fledged member of the family he soon ran their arsenal a cache of weapons that grew to include a submachine gun well in exchange other bikers got access to drugs and the family's girls and his testimony did a lot of heavy lifting for buliosi and he detailed manson's plan to ignite the helter skelter race war well, in the crossed-out sections, that's where we come to crossed-out sections of Buliosi's notes. And DiCarlo, this guy, describes three different visits by Terry Melcher to the Manson family after the murders, which Buliosi just happened to cross out, and let's not bring that up, during the trial. And so... DiCarlo described Melcher's two visits to the Spawn Ranch in late August and early September 1969, and his third visit to the Barker Ranch, which was more than 200 miles away in mid-September. According to Buliosi's notes, DiCarlo did not approach Melcher on any of these occasions, so he didn't know what Melcher and Manson discussed, but he was certain that each time that it was Melcher he saw. Buliosi's notes on the two visits to the Spawn Ranch read, DiCarlo released 72 hours after the bust on August 16, 1969. DiCarlo went back to Venice for a few days, and then he went back to the Spawn Ranch. Week or a week and a half later, went up to Barker with Tex and Bruce Davis in a flatbed truck. Manson and four or five girls left at the same time in a car. The rest of the family stayed at the Spawn Ranch, and between that time, Danny returned to the ranch, um, and he left for Barker Ranch, and he definitely saw Melcher out at the Spawn Ranch, and he heard the girls yelling out, Terry's coming, Terry's coming, and so T Terry Melcher drove up in a metro truck by himself, and he stayed for three or four hours. Three or four days later, he saw Melcher back there again in that same truck. And he's just talking about all these times that Terry Melcher came back after the murders. And they all even got in Melcher's car at one point. Um, let's see. DiCarlo drove off, leaving Melcher, Manson, and Brenda in a car that they had. And this was the last time that DiCarlo ever saw Melcher. So Tom cross-referenced this with the trial transcripts, which he photocopied at the California Court of Appeals, and he pulled Melcher's testimony from the filing cabinet, and he saw that at the grand jury hearing in December 69, Buliosi asked Melcher whether he ever saw Manson after May 1969, and he said, no, I didn't. Well, yes, you did. <laughs> Yes, yeah. you did. And, you know, he kept he kept lying about it and saying that May was the last time he ever saw him. Um, this is something that was never revealed before, but it's in Buliosi's handwriting. Um, and he goes on to say, well, clearly this was information that Buliosi didn't want before the jury, but why? Was it simply because... Any post-murder visits by Melcher undermine the helter-skelter motive? Buliosi argued that Manson chose the Cielo house to instill fear in Melcher, as Susan Atkins also said. 
But if Melcher were with Manson after the murders, where was that fear at then? And most importantly, what were those additional meetings about? And he says maybe Melcher knew that the family was behind the murders, but for some reason believed that he was safe. And was this the secret that Bugliosi was hiding? And if so, who is benefiting from this? Exactly. That's exactly the question. That's a question that we should all be asking. What? Who benefit? Yeah. Other than Terry Melcher, who else benefited from this being buried? And I believe that Tom had talked to the other co-prosecutor, quickly mm-hmm. trying to find his name again, Stephen Kay. And Tom went to him and showed him all of the notes. And Stephen Kay had said, well, this changed, this changes everything. Yeah, he said, I never saw this. I never knew this. And this is his handwriting. And he was just appalled. And so it's also worth noting that during all of this time, Tom went to speak to other people who were involved in both sides of the case and said, did you know about this? And they didn't. And one of the things that Vincent Bugliosi had done is that he violated one of the major rules or laws in prosecuting a case. If you find a piece of evidence, you have to share it with the other side so that Mm -hmm. they can do their due diligence and prepare a defense for whatever it is that they found. There is overwhelming proof that there are other people who were involved with the Manson family before and after the murders that, and they, they could be considered accomplices after the fact or just accomplices. And those people were kept out of the trial for various reasons. Obviously Vincent was, had been told to cover for something or someone. We're not exactly sure. One of the things that is also important, and we're going to do an entire episode later on, on Charlie Manson and who was Charlie Manson. One of the things that a lot of people don't talk about, and this is there's an article that I had sent you and it's included in the show notes for this episode. And you can, and again, for those of you who are still listening, the, uh, the name of this episode is Helter Skelter, The Truth About Vincent Bugliosi and a Compromised Prosecution. It's on the Fedora Chronicles under our true crime page. The, there was a, a meeting, a private meeting, between Charlie Manson and Vincent Bugliosi. And Charlie's Man, Charlie Manson's lawyer was not a part of this hearing, was not a part of the secret meeting between the two of them. Right. And another thing that I had read, and I'm sorry I, I sprung it on you, there is, no. there's somebody out there who is convinced that Charlie Manson was offered a plea deal. And part of the plea deal is that Charlie Manson was to throw the, the, the other members of his family under the bus. And mm-hmm. if Charlie Manson would tell all, tell everything, he would get an immunity deal. Because the thing is, is like, um... I didn't make you commit that crime by talking to you and giving you drugs and telling Mm -hmm. you all of these wild stories. 
you committed that murder. You did that. The people who committed, like Tex Watson and all the other members of the Manson family, they did that. Um, if if, If I tell you, Paige, I need a little excitement in my life. I need you to go to the liquor store and I need you to steal me a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. You go and you commit that crime. Now, you'll go to jail for theft and I'll be an accomplice, but I won't serve as much time as you do because um, you actually committed the crime. I I was just joking, Paige. I, I, I didn't want you yeah. to really do that. You did that. Right. You made that happen. Yeah. Um, so it's like, how could he have this much control over people? And that's where the MK Ultra really ties in because... They were testing with LSD and they were going to this clinic and allegedly getting supplied with LSD from Jolly and these other doctors. And so what was going on in that clinic and what was said to them during this time and how do the drugs play a role in mind control and convincing someone to commit something as crazy as a murder and you have never done this before in your life you've been a drifter forever like a nobody really and now that you come here and they're doing all of these experiments on people it's very much a coincidence that you turn into a cult leader that is taking LSD and going to these free clinics where they're performing these experiments. And then you come out as like a cult leader with this huge following and they're treating you like you're Jesus. Why? It just keeps raising the same questions over and over and over again. And one of the things that we'll be talking about in a future episode is that there's overwhelming evidence, circumstantial that it may be, that Charles Manson was also an informant for the FBI and local police. Yes. Because there had been many times that Charles Manson had been caught in the late 60s, I think somewhere between like possibly 67, 68, 69, where Charles Manson had been arrested, booked on charges, and then released and was never prosecuted. Walked for, out. And just walked out. <laughs> He had a get-out-of-jail-free card that nobody wants yes. to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all in the book. It it's, it's on file. It's on record that he was just let go out of all of these places. And they, they don't really... <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's like, how can you look at it any other way after reading this? It's, <laughs> And I feel like that... This episode, I have confused a lot of people yep. and have been jumping all over the place, and I apologize for that. I I just feel like with this episode, I have not done well in explaining. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at, because the thing is, is that I think the part, the, the part of this that you play in this episode is sort of like you're the audience advocate, as it were. You're the one who has all of these questions. You've read the book and and you have taken a little bit of notes. It's not fair for me to think that you can have all the all the answers 
and and you have the same amount of knowledge that I have. Um, I, oh, not at all. I, I I already know that you know way more than me. Like I I am not at all as educated as you when it comes to this. So that's why I really enjoy listening to you and like trying to scurry to find yeah. in the book where things are. <laughs> right. And I and I and I appreciate that. And sometimes I'm just kind of like, oh, but what what about what about Tex Watson? And I think Tex yes, Watson. I, know. I think Tex Watson deserves an entire an episode. episode. But I think that the <laughs> For sure. I think that what people really need to come away with in this episode is an understanding that Vincent was not a nice guy. And he was not really a good prosecutor. And somebody apparently was pulling his strings and pushing his buttons behind the scenes. He made up a lot of stuff that he put in his, in his book, Helter Skelter, about this famous case. Tom O'Neill did his research, looked into... Then he's, yeah, all he's got in- a whole chapter called Holes in Helter Skelter. Um, which is... In and of itself, it's worth the price of the book. Oh, yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up in all of this is that in the JFK conspiracy theorist community, Vincent Bugliosi is nefarious, to say the least. He, mm-hmm. wrote, he quote, wrote this book called Reclaiming History, doing his best to debunk the conspiracy theory that Lee Harvey Oswald um, acted alone. What Vincent Bugliosi did and did well, I put in air quotes, is that he left out a lot of aspects of the assassination, especially what happened on Daly Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. Vincent mm-hmm. made a point to exclude the overwhelming witness testimony from the people who were there on the grassy knoll, who was there in Daly Plaza. The vast majority of the people who were there heard gunshots coming from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. There are people who saw the muzzle flash, they smelled the smoke, they saw the, 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 the cloud of smoke from that direction. He leaves out the part where um, Lee Burrows, who worked in the um, railroad shipping yard that was adjacent to the parking lot behind the, the, the picket fence, and what he saw, Vincent makes a point to ignore all of the people who had come forward and said, I knew Lee, Har- Lee Harvey Oswald. I know that he had a connection with um, Jack Ruby. Vincent chose to ignore the eyewitness testimony who, of people who say they saw Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald talking at um, at jack ruby's nightclub choose mm-hmm. to ignore all of the mountain of evidence that jim garrison had uncovered 
during his prosecution of Clay Shaw. The only thing that you could say good about Vincent Bugliosi's book is that it's not nearly as bad and as erroneous as Gerald Posner's book, Case Closed. Um, Vincent Bugliosi has a pattern of ignoring evidence that's right in front of his face. Like, and I'm mm-hmm. going to, here's the thing. Everybody, fill up your shot glasses. You're going to have to take another one. I'm going to butcher this name. There's a guy <laughs> by the name of George DeMorenshield who was allegedly the handler for Lee Harvey Oswald. And I'm going to include the clip, I might include the audio, of Jesse Ventura interviewing Vincent Bugliosi for Jesse Ventura's show about conspiracy theories. When Jesse asks Vince about George DeMorenshield, Vincent Bugliosi demands that they turn off the cameras. Turn off the cameras right now. And Oh wow. Vincent Vincent also has a history of demanding people turn off their recorders and says crazy batshit things quote off the record. Um my conclusion to all of this is that Vincent Bugliosi would be the last person in the world that you would want to convict somebody like Charles Manson. Right. Vincent Bugliosi was probably the worst prosecutor you would ever want to choose. He (laughs) prosecuted the case against Charles Manson and the Manson family in a certain way, excluding some evidence and making up other evidence. We have no idea who he was doing this for other than the attorney general and the district attorney in that region. Um, And I don't think that we're ever going to know what really happened. Why did Vincent Bugliosi press the case the way he did? Yeah, and I kind of wanted to look back on the whole Susan Atkins, uh, him knowing that she was not a good witness. Let's see. Because I can't remember what that was. Because it, at like one point, the deal changed. And, okay. Throughout Helter Skelter, Bugliosi inadvertently proved how malleable the Atkins deal was, describing it in different terms at different times. Early in the narrative, he said that all she had to do was testify truthfully to the grand jury and cooperate with authorities. She'd never have to testify against her co-defendants at the actual trial. In exchange, the prosecution would consider not asking for the death penalty. But after the grand jury, the deal changed. Suddenly, she did have to testify against the others. And Bugliosi said without her, we still didn't have a case. Later still, he said that the prosecution was stuck with Atkins on the stand because of the deal and bemoaning the fact that he'd made an agreement with a killer. Okay, so Bugliosi was scared that he was going to lose his star witness, which was Susan, um, because her attorney was letting her take visits to the former family members that were coming to give her 
messages from Manson. And one day she called her attorney and told him that she was not going to testify at the trial. And Tom says it was her first step toward formally undoing everything, except the indictments, which couldn't be undone. And so that's when Vincent started to get scared that he was going to lose her. But inwardly, Vincent must have been glad about that. Um, Although he omitted it from his book, he was already in negotiations with the attorney of Linda um, Kasabian. And she was a far more sympathetic witness. And they were going to cut a deal with her to take Susan's place at the trial because Susan was just not good enough anymore. Um, Of course, had Atkins' attorneys been uh, independently appointed, they would have reminded the prosecution of the terms of her deal, which precluded her testimony at the trial. Now, Vincent could claim that she'd violated the deal and would lose her security against the death penalty. Susan kept unraveling. And on March 5th, 1970, in the attorney's room at the Central County Jail, her attorney presided over an hour-long reunion between Susan and Charlie. And he said that they were both really happy and were laughed, they were laughing, and they hadn't seen each other in five months. So, the meeting was only possible because the judge granted Manson the right to represent himself, an allowance that shocked the courtroom. And, as his own attorney, he was entitled to meet with his jail co-defendants on the pretext of interviewing them as possible witnesses in the case against him. So, the first person that he requested um, was Susan. And after they met up, a reporter asked Susan if Charlie had ordered her to change the story that she had already relayed to the grand jury. And she said, Charlie doesn't give orders. Charlie doesn't command. Which contradicted her grand jury testimony. Um And then the day after, she ended up firing her attorneys. And she announced that she was going to recant her grand jury testimony and formally decline to testify for the state. Uh, And the same day, the judge revoked Manson's right to represent himself, um, arguing that Manson had filed too many outlandish and nonsensical motions. Um... The excellent deal that Vincent had written of was no deal at all. Its non-existence has gone unnoticed all of these years. Who cares about the legal vagari- uh, vagaries of a confessed killer like Susan Atkins? But without this hoax of a deal and the lawyer swap that enabled it, Manson and his followers may never have been indicted, and the reigning narrative of Manson as an all-controlling cult leader may never have come out. Now, it raises a lot of questions. Yeah. And they basically used Susan to get an indictment and then they dumped her because they couldn't use her at the trial anymore. Because basically she she would not say what they told her to say. Yes. And that she she would not give them the part of the net. She wouldn't give them the narrative that they were looking for. And right. When it all 
when it all comes right down to it, what the hell were they hiding? Now, as I close the show out, because I, I just took a look at the time, and and my son has a meeting with his with his teachers on a Zoom call, and he needs all the bandwidth he can get out here in the <laughs> southern New Hampshire. The entire prosecution against Charlie Manson was compromised from the beginning. Charlie Manson was his own lawyer, and he, he did a horrible job defending himself. Uh, Vincent was compromised from the very beginning with all of his personal problems and how he was an embarrassment to um, the district attorney's office with all of his personal shenanigans, um, left out certain things, added things in. He just made stuff up when he was prosecuting Charlie Manson. And, but he was still able to get a, convic- a conviction. Um, yeah. He was definitely a liar and a manipulator. <laughs> with, without a doubt. And, and he also had this huge, ginormous ego that you and I have talked about again and, uh, again and again. The one thing about Tom O'Neill's book that is just extraordinary is that Tom was willing to say, here's everything that I found. Here's all, here are all the things that don't make sense. Obviously, Charles Manson was a crazed lunatic that was able to convince people of doing crazy things. Um, did he deserve a life sentence? I, I, I don't know. To this day, I, I, I don't know. Especially after reading this book, I'm not convinced that Charles Manson was the end-all and be-all. No. One of the, I think a lot more people should have went to prison. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, don't, I don't think that... It, um, I think that Charles Manson was covering up for someone or something, and he was, he was a patsy for a much larger problem. Did he deserve to go to jail? For his part in the murders? Absolutely. Of course. Uh, but, and I'm also convinced that, that Charles Manson was a part of a much more bigger, nefarious program or project. And yeah. we should consider ourselves lucky that Vincent Bugliosi was able to get a convi- conviction. Because who knows what other chaos, see the pun that I made there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Manson would have been able to inflict on the rest of the world. And I also I also want to be absolutely, totally, perfectly clear here. By no stretch of the imagination am I saying that Charles Manson wasn't guilty. Charles Manson was guilty of doing some horrible, heinous things. In event, and it was inevitable that Charles Manson was going to do something horrible. I am not at all absolving Charles Manson of any of the horrible things that he did. Yeah. But, you know, you also have to take into account that higher powers were using a man that had been through so much and probably was mentally ill in some kind of way or definitely had mental issues, giving him all of these drugs and talking to him about doing things and covering up things and there's just so much of course everybody has to be held accountable for their actions but how much did charlie 
do with his own hands? And how can you make someone kill for you? I will tell you that this is a part of a much bigger puzzle that we will be talking about in a, a future episode. I think that you and I just need to figure out where do we go from here? <laughs> I know. I, and I, I just apologize because I know I've been all over the place in this episode and I don't, I don't want to be like that in the next episode because I feel like I've probably confused a lot of people. No, I think, and... I don't think, I, I don't think that you're giving yourself enough credit because this is so much to deal with. I mean, we're, we're also talking about the legacy of Helter Skelter. We're, we're going against the grain of what we've been told for the past 50 years in regards to Charlie right. Manson. I mean, not only are we saying, why, well, yes, Charlie Manson is guilty of doing something horrible, but we don't think that he was convicted for everything. And Charles Manson is a part of a much bigger thing. And Vincent Boglosi did his part to cover up what was what's the rest of the picture. We were only allowed to see just a tiny fragment of what was really going on here. And it, and I know it sounds crazy and I know it sounds insane, but there was more to the story than we were being told. So yeah, with that page, is there anything else that you would like to be? Would is there anything else you would like to say? And don't throw yourself under the bus because I think you've done an incredible job in this episode. Well, it's just really hard to fit certain things into one episode. It's really difficult. Because you have two books that are going against each other. And the one by Tom O'Neill completely debunks, like, the majority of Helter Skelter. And it's so hard for both of us to explain that without people reading Tom O'Neill's book. And these links that you have are definitely going to be helpful for people to understand more of where we're coming from. But I just wish people would read this book so they would understand because it's really hard to pick and choose through the book what you want to talk about at certain points because it's like you want to talk about all of it at the same time. And it, it's just really difficult. And if you think this is crazy, just wait until you hear the episode about... Who Charlie Manson and who and what he really was. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really ready for that one, honestly. I think that we are going to tentatively promise the audience that our next episode on Charlie Manson and who he really was is going to be our next episode, unless we have to do a um, another episode to say, wait, here's some more background information. But right now I already yeah. have... I already have the logo already made for the Charlie Manson episode ready to go. But right. um, that's, that is going to be huge and explosive. But it is in closing, I have to say, Paige, you did a phenomenal job. Even though you didn't give yourself enough credit, it's a very difficult thing to talk about, to come out and say that America's top lawyer in the 1960s and 70s turned out to be a liar and that's hard yeah. for people to to go to get a uh, to get around so page yeah and it yeah go ahead Paige. i just 
I just really, I really appreciate you having me on. It's just really hard to present all of this evidence to people, not sound crazy while you're doing it. And like, there's just so much, there's just so much. And I just wish that I could piece it together to make it all make sense to everyone. But it's really something that you also have to go down a rabbit hole yourself too. Yeah, you really do. And you know what? You folks, you read the book and you tell us what you think and then get back to us because I think that we're going to yeah. have a we're going to have an episode. It might be our last episode where we read uh, listeners comments and answer their their question and page. Yeah. And I think a few podcasters wanted to come on after they read the book and we all discuss it. Absolutely. That's definitely that I would really like to be able to do as well. So, Paige, once again, thank you so much. And thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for being my partner in true crime. Congratulations on surviving another episode of the Thor Chronicles radio show. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at google.com are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions and if it's any good we promise we will read your comment on the air support the show by contributing to our patreon page patreon.com slash fedora chronicles for a mere dollar a month you get early access to the podcast updates on what we're doing and for five dollars a month you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com slash store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by Olive Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020, all rights reserved. On behalf of my co-host Jason and I, this is Eric Render King Fisk signing off and reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on.